0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Beth Fisher to discuss her book, The Myth of Triumphalism. Dr. Fisher takes a close look at the many myths that have grown up around the Reagan administration's handling of the Cold War, and instead argues that Reagan's supporters have taken away the wrong messages about his foreign policy. Dr. Fisher, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I have a degree in political science, although a lot of my research interests focus on historical topics. I uh, am a faculty member at the University of Toronto, and I'm the director of a program for first-year students called Woodsworth One.
0: And tell us a little bit about uh, your background in terms of education. Where did you get your doctorate? Um, Who did you study with?
1: Well, I did my undergraduate at Colgate University in upstate New York, and then I came to the University of Toronto, uh, and I did my master's here, I did my PhD here, and I did a postdoctoral uh, fellowship here. I left for a while, and then I came back as a faculty member. And when I did my PhD, I was working with Jean Edward Smith, hmm. uh, the noted biographer who sadly just passed away, uh, Janice Stein, and David Welch.
0: And what did your early work look like?
1: Well, my earliest work was actually about President Reagan. That was my doctoral dissertation. It was my first book. And I was uh, researching at a time when the conventional wisdom was that the Cold War ended because Mikhail Gorbachev revolutionized the Soviet Union and revolutionized the world. And I happened to be just combing through some speeches that Reagan gave. And I I came across these speeches in 1984 where Reagan was you know, asking for uh, summit meetings, he was talking about dangerous misunderstandings. And to me, it just seemed curious. I had thought of him as a cold warrior. So I didn't understand where those speeches were coming from and what they were about. And that kind of led to decades uh, of research about Reagan, because I find him a very... uh, enigmatic character. He's a little bit hard to pigeonhole. So uh, that's been one of the common threads throughout my career is I go off and I do other things, but I keep coming back to Reagan because I find him uh, very interesting.
0: And would you say that your your earliest work here, it actually dovetails with this book at any level? Was it sort of like coming home again, even though, as you say, you've been working on Reagan for- sometime.
1: Yeah, you know, well, you know what was interesting? I did the first book and and the end of the Cold War stuff. And, you know, you you get a little tired of things and you want to move on. And that's the beauty of a political science degree. It's so flexible, and it touches on so many interesting topics. So I I went off and did other things. And then when President Reagan passed away, um, the media surrounding his funeral and the stereotypes of Reagan at that point in time were 180 degrees from the way in which the media characterized him when he left office in 1988. When he left office in 1988, a lot of the stereotype was along the lines of, well, he was a nice guy, but he wasn't very bright. And there were actually other people running his administration, and he was just a very effective spokesperson. But then by the time he died in uh, 2004, I'm, I'm bad with dates. That's why I'm a political scientist and not a historian. It was, <laughs> you are correct. In 2004, the, 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 the funeral, Everyone's, this was the man who destroyed the Soviet Union and won the Cold War. And so it was a very different image. And I just became intrigued as how did we get to that point? What went on? And so that's when I became uh, uh, interested in this whole triumphalist uh, narrative, which is the focus of this book.
0: So this book, this is the myth of triumphalism. And when you talk about Cold War triumphalism, you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but what specifically is it, what form does it take? What's, what's the sort of underlying argument?
1: So triumphalism, Cold War triumphalism, is this idea that President Reagan uh, single-handedly won the Cold War by threatening Moscow and building up U.S. military power. Um, it's this idea that Reagan's threats, you know, calling Moscow the evil empire, launching the largest peacetime military buildup in u s. history, introducing the strategic defense initiative, um, all of this all of these things somehow forced Moscow to surrender the Cold War and eventually collapse. And when I say surrender the cold war, i'm I'm referring to, Moscow's decision to agree to arms reductions, to adopt democratic reforms, to withdraw from its war in Afghanistan. So triumphalists argue that all of these things are examples of Moscow, you know, knuckling under American pressure, that uh, it just couldn't take the pressure that Reagan's policies placed upon them, and therefore they reformed and then collapsed. And so this triumphalist narrative is very common in the United States, but it's a myth. And actually, it's a series of myths about President Reagan's intentions, his policies, and the impact that he had on the Soviet Union.
0: Now, out of curiosity, who's been responsible for propagating this myth? Because it has been propagated. As you know, this was not the narrative that existed in 1989, for example. But my whole childhood, this this was sort of the accepted story. So. Where did it come from?
1: Well, you know, in the beginning, so it shows the Reagan administration left office in 1988 and a couple of the uh, biographies in the early 90s by American officials, for example, Defense Secretary Weinberger argued that we had this large military buildup and look what happened. The Soviet Union agreed to arms reductions and reforms and, and therefore it must have been our arms build up and our policies that forced the Soviet Union to change its behavior. So in the beginning in the 1990s when we didn't have access to Soviet documents to interviews with Soviet in, uh, officials when we didn't have access to information about what was actually going on in the Soviet Union you could see that it made sense to say well you know we wanted we wanted supposedly the, the Soviet Union to collapse, the Soviet Union did collapse, therefore we caused the Soviet Union to collapse. But you know, uh there, after, you know, beginning in the mid to late 1990s, a lot of information came out of the Soviet Union, sometimes more information than was coming out of the, of the United States. And we got uh, much more information about what was going on in Moscow, what the discussions were in Moscow, uh, what the key issues were. And now, if you do a lot of research on, on Soviet decision making, as I did for this book, You can see that there's a whole number of reasons that explain why the Soviet Union did what it did, and it really wasn't uh, acquiescing to American pressure.
0: So in his first term, how does Reagan approach the issue of U.S.-Soviet relations from a diplomatic perspective, and did that change over time?
1: Yeah. Um, First, I just want to add a a couple of things. You know, some people may say, well, why should we care about the Cold War? It's over. We've moved on. Um, But, you know, I respond to that with like two different points. One is the ending of the Cold War can teach us something about how to resolve other seemingly intractable conflicts. We forget now that as late as 1983, no one thought the Cold War was going to be ending. It was it, it was actually a surprise. Um, and at the time, nobody predicted it. So we had this conflict that most people thought was going to be an enduring part of the international system. And very quickly, it turned around. And not only did it end... It ended peacefully, so we've got a great case here to study that possibly can teach us how do we resolve other conflicts. How can we peacefully resolve other conflicts that right now seem to be intractable? And then the second thing is, you know, why is it uh, important to study triumphalism or to debunk triumphalism in particular? And that's because triumphalism not only claims to explain the past, you know, how the Cold War ended, it also Prescribes how to conduct current foreign policy and future foreign policy. And the logic is: well, Reagan uh, was stunningly successful. He he forced the Soviet Union to collapse and enabled us to win the Cold War by calling the names and building up military power. So that's what current presidents should do. Current presidents should build up military power, issue threats, avoid negotiations, and pursue regime change. And you know, none of that is supported by the evidence from the time. So uh, it's really important to study this period. Um, But sorry, back to your initial question, which is uh, how did Reagan's approach to U.S.-Soviet relations change over his first term? Um, It's important to remember that when President Reagan took office, the economy was really weak. And so improving the economy was priority one, two, and three for the Reagan administration. And foreign policy really took a back seat And so for the first couple of years, the foreign policy machinery was really disorganized. Uh, The job responsibilities were vague. There were ongoing turf battles. There were famous personality clashes, ideological disputes. And this resulted in a lot of uh, turnover in the administration. The Reagan administration went through three national security advisors and two secretaries of state in the first term alone. So for the first couple of years, U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union was really little more than name-calling, coupled with a a military buildup. And by the fall of 1983, Reagan's approach was causing growing alarm around the world. There was this growing fear that we were sliding toward a superpower war. So the European allies were privately contacting the administration and asking asking that the president be, as they said, less shrill. Uh, international media outlets were claiming that you know re- superpower relations had never been so bad since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and even the Vatican was alarmed. The Vatican sent a mediator trying to smooth things over between Moscow and and Washington. And in 1983, when Time Magazine did its retrospective of 1983, the you know the year and in, in at the end of the year issue. They said that the the descent towards war was the defining feature of 1983. So the situation by 1983 had become extraordinarily tense, um, in part owing to this, in large part owing to Reagan's threats and the buildup and what the public didn't know at the time in 1983, but was that in November, there had been a near miss. There had been a serious war scare, um, which had really rattled uh, President Reagan. And in, in November, NATO had been conducting an exercise, a planned military exercise, and the Soviets had mistaken it to be uh, the beginning of a nuclear attack on them. They thought that this was the start of a nuclear war. And so in response, uh, the Kremlin uh, uh, prepared its nuclear-capable jet fighters for a retaliatory attack. So in Poland and in East Germany, Uh, the Soviet Air Force began loading nuclear weapons onto their aircraft. The Soviets were preparing to bomb West Germany with nuclear weapons. So this was the result of Reagan's early name-calling and military buildup. We came to the brink of a nuclear war.
0: And you've alluded to some of the personality clashes that exist in the administration in this period, and they make for, I won't lie, kind of salacious reading, just because you get an extent how, how in turn assigned the conflict was, what was Reagan's approach to trying to manage that?
1: Yeah. President Reagan hated conflict. And, and so he, it's interesting when you read minutes of national security meetings, oftentimes he's rather quiet. And when he gets, I mean, he did, he did a smart thing that a a lot of uh, executives will do in that they built a team of people with a variety of different perspectives. So that's a great thing. But what Reagan didn't do effectively was communicate whose side he was on or of the variety of uh, perspectives that were presented to him by his advisors, which one he supported and which one he wanted to move forward on. So when there were periods of conflict, the president tended to try to dispel the conflict with humorous jokes or anecdotes, and oftentimes the advisors would leave the meeting and everybody thought Reagan supported their perspective. So there was a lot of confusion within the the administration. Reagan, um, you know, in public, he was a great communicator. He had the ability to craft uh, speeches that were used simple language and were optimistic and were really appealing to the public. But in private, he really had difficulty communicating uh, with his advisors and explaining his des- decisions clearly. And this this also undermined uh, U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union because everybody went off, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, everyone went, went out of a meeting thinking that they had the green light to go in different directions. So the Soviets were often frustratingly confused as, as to what the administration's policy was. <sighs>
0: Now there's been a lot of myth making about Reagan's arms buildup, particularly in the early years. I, I freely admit I, I have to push back on this every time I lecture on this period in U.S. history. Without fail, I've got a lot of students who believe that the arms buildup led to the end of the Cold War. How? Why did it happen, and what was its effect?
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's a very common perspective that the the military buildup terrified the Soviets, and therefore they they just surrendered, or they were trying to keep up with military expenditures, and that bankrupted their economy. Neither of those narratives uh, are true. Um, And the other interesting thing is Triumphalus argued that Reagan initiated the buildup so as to force the Soviet Union into an arms race that would bankrupt them. Uh, That's not true either. That wasn't Reagan's intention. Um, And Reagan and his officials have repeatedly rejected uh, that argument. So when they took office, President Reagan and his advisors mistakenly believed that the Soviet Union had been engaging in a military buildup during the 1970s. And there was this notion that either the Soviets were about to surpass the United States in terms of military strength, or it was close to doing so. So this mistaken belief was based in part upon faulty CIA estimates from the late 70s. This, you know, Estimating Soviet defense spending and estimating the rate at which Soviets were acquiring new weapons was really tricky business. And uh, during the 1970s, the CIA had erroneously concluded that the Soviets were increasing the rate at which they were acquiring new weapons. The CIA came to find out, ah, that was wrong. And by 1982, they said, you know what? We overestimated Soviet defense spending. We overestimated the rate at which they were acquiring new weapons. And actually, the Soviets aren't really in an arms race. But by that time, the Reagan administration had repeatedly gone on the record saying the Soviets are, you know, are about to surpass us in the arms race. So this, the, the Reagan buildup had three goals. One was to catch up with the Soviets. The second was to deter the Soviets from expanding its sphere of influence. And again, this was a mistaken, based on a mistaken assumption that the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan because they believed the Americans were weak. It actually had nothing to do with the Americans. But the main objective of Reagan's buildup was to persuade the Soviets to agree to arms reductions. So Reagan officials assumed, wrongly, that they had to threaten the Soviet Union into agreeing to reduce its arsenal. Um, now, the Soviets had a whole bunch of reasons why they wanted to reduce their arsenals, and they didn't need pressure from Washington to agree to do that. So on the Soviet side, number one, they wanted to improve their economy. And so the, the, one of the key planks of improving their economy was to reduce defense spending, they want to reduce defense spending and invest instead in consumer goods and technology. And most everyone in the Soviet Union agreed that the country had been wasting far too many resources on defense spending. So, that was reducing defense spending, was not at all a controversial idea uh, in the Soviet Union in the early 1980s. Also, military reformers in the, in the Soviet Union. Thought that the Soviet Union actually had too many weapons, and by having too many weapons, they were undermining their own security. Uh, weapons were expensive to produce, they were expensive to maintain, and the more weapons the Soviet Union had, the more the West was afraid, which made the West build up its own arsenal. So it was, it was counterproductive. And military reformers, in particular, decided that nuclear weapons were a colossal waste of money. They were expensive. They could never be used because of their destructive capacity, and they caused fear in the West, which prompted the United States to build up its nuclear arsenal. So nuclear weapons were worse than useless. They were counterproductive. So Soviet reformers wanted to end the arms race for a variety of financial, strategic, and security reasons. And the problem was the more belligerent Reagan seemed, the harder it was for Gorbachev to pursue arms reductions, you can imagine Gorbachev and his fellow reformers you know talking about reducing defense spending while Reagan is building up the military and calling the Soviet Union the evil empire um, it's a hard sell for Soviet uh, for conservatives so Gorbachev didn't have close tie with conservatives in the Soviet military, and these conservatives used Reagan as an excuse to resist arms. Reductions. The the um, conservatives in the Soviet military um, said, you know, look, you've got this hardliner in the United States. He's threatening us. We need to continue matching uh, U.S. military uh, expenditures. So Reagan's hardline post- posture actually made it more difficult for Gorbachev to pursue reforms and disarmament.
0: Now, Reagan in this period also supports SDI, Star Wars. It's Mm -hmm. sort of popularly known. And the effect of this has also been bitterly debated for years. Why was Reagan so committed to it? And what was its effect?
1: Yeah, SDI was really controversial at the time. And it continues to be. Most people forget SDI was a research program. And the end goal of this research program was to someday develop uh, a space-based system of lasers that would shoot down enemy missiles as they were heading towards the United States. So it was a research program. And Reagan's vision was that it would be this defensive system that could protect civilians. But for the most part, it was a rather vague uh, research project. Now, triumphalists argue that President Reagan introduced SDI so as to lure the Soviets into an arms race that they couldn't afford, and that, that it would therefore bankrupt them. But that doesn't at all sync with the president's own descriptions of, of why he uh, embarked on SDI. And in fact, Reagan administration officials have repeatedly rejected the suggestion that they pursued SDI so as to bankrupt the Soviet Union. So. President Reagan wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons. That was his overriding goal during his presidency. And he actually uh, talked about that quite a bit uh, in his memoirs and and elsewhere. And SDI was part of that dream to eliminate nuclear weapons. The logic was a bit counterintuitive. so, So bear with me here for a second. In Reagan's view, he hoped that SDI would eventually be able to protect American citizens against a nuclear attack. If it worked, that would mean Soviet nuclear missiles would become useless because the United States would have an effective defensive system. So Reagan thought, okay, that's good if Soviet missiles became useless. But what Reagan really wanted was to share SDI technology with the Soviets because he reasoned if both the United States and the Soviets could protect their citizens against a nuclear attack, then nuclear weapons would become useless. They they would be obsolete, and therefore, they could be eliminated. So if both superpowers had an SDI-like defensive system, the superpowers could then someday agree to abolish nuclear weapons. So from Reagan's perspective... STI was a key component of his quest to eliminate nuclear weapons. That's why he supported it so robustly. And that is why he repeatedly offered to share STI technology with Moscow, which most people don't realize he did. Most people don't realize that Reagan repeatedly offered to share STI technology with the Kremlin. And this drove his, his advisors crazy. Um, they all repeatedly told the president that the United States could not under any circumstances ever share SDI technology with the Soviets because that would be the most massive transfer of U.S. technology in the history of the Cold War. And even Defense Secretary Weinberger, who was really the only person beside President Reagan who believed in SDI, even Weinberger was opposed to sharing uh, SDI technology. As he told Reagan, he said, Mr. President, the idea, the idea scares the pants off me, but you know, and there's a lot of funny anecdotes in, in the book of Reagan. Call you know, putting in a speech, we need to share SDI technology with the Soviets, and then the, the all his advisors would cross that out of the speech, and they'd send the speech back to the Reagan, and Reagan would put it back in, and the advisors would take it out, and it would go back and forth. Um, he, President Reagan actually uh, even wrote a letter to Ann Landers. Um, talking about how he wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons and his advisors all crossed it out of the letter. And so this was an ongoing battle within the Reagan administration. Um, the other thing I should point out is that um, even though president Reagan repeatedly offered to share SDI technology during all the summit meetings and in, in private letters, the Soviets never took him seriously. And I think they missed an important opportunity to kill SDI um, There was a lot of resistance to SDI, both within the American Congress and, to be honest, within the White House. Um, And if Gorbachev had just once said, OK, I think that's a great idea. Let's share SDI technology. Well, the opposition to SDI in the United States would have just exploded. Everyone would have run around with their hair on fire. And it's likely that, you know, the tepid support that the president enjoyed for SDI would have evaporated along with any congressional funding. So this, to this day, I don't know why Gorbachev didn't just say, sure, great idea, let's share SDI technology. Uh, can I just add one point? are claimed that the Soviets were so afraid of SDI and American Technology that the mere prospect of it compelled the Kremlin to agree to arms reductions. That's, that's just false. In fact, the Soviets had considered an SDI-like plan of their own five years before uh, Reagan introduced SDI. Uh, so they had intimate knowledge of the technology. They understood how difficult it would be to build. And although they were initially alarmed, by the president's proposal because they had a lot of respect for American technology. After studying it for a while, their fears largely dissipated. They thought at best uh, it would take 15 to 20 years to build and in all likelihood would never be built. And they also believed that they could counter the system pretty cheaply and pretty easily. So the Soviets never invested in an SDI project of their own. In fact, Gorbachev's advisors repeatedly counseled him to just stop talking about SDI, just to focus instead on getting the Americans to agree to arms reductions.
0: Fascinating. Um- I'd love to dig more into that, but I want to try to keep on track with this. We've gotten a lot to Gorbachev. And um, there's there's a lot of rhetoric that Reagan's um, military buildup, Reagan's toughness towards the Soviet Union is what produces a reforming politician like Gorbachev, who is very different from the people who preceded him, especially uh, Chernenko and Brezhnev. So how, is there any truth in that? Where does reform come from within Soviet society?
1: Right, yeah, that's a great question, you know. Uh, part of the problem is that triumphalists never engage in a lot of research into what was going on in Moscow in the 1980s. You know, they never stopped to ask, why did Moscow behave the way it did? They just assumed they behaved the way it did in response to American policies. So when you do start delving into the Soviet Union and Soviet documents and minutes from Politburo meetings, and and do interviews and uh, look at memoirs, you'll see that there was a reform movement growing in the Soviet Union since the 1950s. And by the 1980s, uh, by the end of the 1970s, there was a large contingent of people from across the political spectrum in the Soviet Union who believed that defense spending had to be restrained, that the arms race had been a waste, and that the Soviet Union needed to adopt uh, democratic reforms and, and uh, a bit of capitalism as well. So when Gorbachev entered, entered office, he had broad support for uh, uh, reforms. And, you know, in interviews and oral history conferences, one of the common themes like, if it wasn't Gorbachev, it would have been somebody else. But the the time had come when there was a a, a, a large enough contingent of people who understood that reform was necessary. And the fascinating thing is that, When you read minutes of Politburo meetings, you see that the the Soviet discussions often mirror the discussions that are taking place in the White House. The Soviets wanted to reduce armaments. The Soviets wanted to improve relations. You know, they wanted to, uh, Gorbachev and his reformers ideally wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons. So both the Politburo and the White House wanted the same thing. And so in but neither really understood the other's position. The the mis, the misunderstandings and the miscommunications between the two capitals was really profound. Um in the minutes of the Politburo meetings Gorbachev and his fellow reformers talk about how, you know, the arms race makes no sense and how frustrating it is that the Americans are dithering when it comes to an arms agreement. At one point Gorbachev says something to the effect of we are doomed to have to drag these people along with us, slowing everything down.
0: Wow, uh, that's, that's a visceral image right there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So then I want to, um, I'm curious how we arrive. At the, at the fact that after 85, you actually start to see very substantive arms control agreements and talks, and there are breakdowns and there are flaws in this process, but it, ha- it all happens very quickly. So how, how do we go from this deadlock from the, of the first four years, and what ultimately pushes both sides over the line? Is it just Gorbachev dragging Reagan, so to speak?
1: No. And it's interesting. Yeah. Gorbachev believes he's dragging uh, uh, Reagan and the Americans believe that the the Soviets will never agree to arms reduction unless they're pressured and threatened. So it's really quite striking. You know, by 1984, by January 1984, the Reagan administration was changing its public face and talking more and more about peace through strength. Um, Essentially, the goal the overriding goal for the administration was arms reduction they wanted moscow to agree to reduce its nuclear arsenals and as i mentioned the administration believed that the only way moscow would do that would it would if they faced a, a strong and threatening adversary so from 1984 through the end of his presidency in 1988 the president's number 1 priority was to reduce nuclear arsenals. Actually, the administration's number one priority was to reduce nuclear arsenals. Reagan took it several steps farther. He wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons altogether. To, all um, and in order to do this, you need summit meetings, you need diplomacy, you need negotiations, you need trade-offs. But Reagan had this idea that was absolutely radical for the time. He wanted to not just reduce nuclear arsenals, he wanted to eliminate them altogether. So, People forget that before the Reagan administration came into power, most arms agreements just agreed to limit the rate at which the arsenals could continue to grow. Reagan administration said, nope, we're done with growing arsenals. What we want to do is actually now start to reduce them. And then Reagan is like, I don't want to just reduce. I want to eliminate them. Now, everyone, everyone thought that was a terrible idea at the time. Um, Everyone thought that, you know, all of the Reagan's advisors, the arms control experts, Margaret Thatcher and all the allies all believed that nuclear weapons were a necessary evil. um, That they this is why there had never been any World War Three. The logic was that the Soviets knew that if they started a war, the Americans could punish them. By launching a nuclear attack against them. And then the Soviet Union would be destroyed. So it would make no sense for the Soviets to initiate a war because they would ultimately be destroyed. That was the logic for keeping nuclear weapons. But Reagan rejected that argument. He thought that as long as there were nuclear arsenals, there was the potential for a catastrophic accident, or as he used to put it, some madman would... would be able to press the button and civilians would be the main victims. So Reagan wanted to eliminate nuclear arms. And this was something that was deeply important to him and something that triumphalists completely overlooked. And if you read the president's biography, and if you look at his diary, he talks about it quite a bit. Um, He wanted to eliminate nuclear arms. He wanted that to be his legacy. So all his advisors thought this was a terribly, terrible idea. And they repeatedly tried to persuade him to stop talking about it. But So for the last five years of his presidency, uh, Reagan was focused on improving relations with Moscow so that the superpowers could reduce, if not eliminate, their nuclear weapons. On the Soviet side, Gorbachev and his reformers also wanted to to end the arms race because it was expensive and undermined security. And they also understood in order to end the arms race, you need to end the Cold War. You need to improve relations with the West. So um, both of them really uh, wanted the same thing. it just took them a long time to understand uh, each other's uh, position and and can I just add something about sDI um, c- because along with this there's the argument that uh, you know SDI somehow f- forced the soviets to to surrender the Cold War collapse um, Gorbachev thought sDI was Pretty much a useless irritant. I mean, that was that was his position. Um, unlike his predecessors uh, and Dropov in particular, he didn't think President Reagan was going to launch a war. He didn't think the West was ever going to attack the Soviet Union, um, and he also didn't think that the Americans were ever going to build SDI. It was technically challenging. It would take decades. Um, he thought Congress would eventually go try, tired of funding it. Um, And in fact, Gorbachev thought it might just be a hoax, you know, that that maybe it was just this propaganda campaign intended to trick Moscow into investing large sums of its money into building a system of its own. And and in 1993, a U.S. congressional committee found that there was a propaganda campaign uh, affiliated with SDI for for that purpose, actually. But so SDI just kind of irritated Gorbachev. Um, because he wanted to focus on reducing superpower arsenals, and he felt that SDI was just a distraction. And as long as Reagan kept promoting this project, conservatives in the Soviet military could use SDI as an excuse to ask for more funding. So SDI just made it more difficult for Gorbachev to reduce Soviet arsenals.
0: So here's a here's a sort of big concept question. Um, since there's, there's this myth that Reagan has... It basically, ended the Cold War for the United States. Does he deserve credit for bringing, for seeing it basically to a peaceful conclusion? If not, causing it at least presiding over its its peaceful termination. What does he deserve credit for?
1: Yeah, and and so one of the things I try to make clear is that you know Reagan's big legacy wasn't the collapse of the Soviet Union; um, it was the peaceful conclusion of. The Cold War, it's easy to forget that, you know, as late as 1983, no one saw this coming. And most people thought that Cold War was an enduring feature of the international system. And virtually no one was even trying to end the Cold War. Really, there were two people trying to end the Cold War, uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan. Um, so everyone, most everyone else was just trying to prevent it from, you know, boiling over into a nuclear war. So the fact that it ended was really shocking. And it wasn't Reagan's threats or Reagan's military buildup that brought about the ending of the Cold War. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, that made it far worse. Um, It was his radical ideas about global security, you know, and his embrace of diplomacy. Reagan has these radical ideas about global security. He envisioned a world beyond the arms race. He wanted to eliminate nuclear weapons. He wanted to share SDI technology with the Soviets. Um, These were radical ideas at the time. Um, Gorbachev and his fellow reformers shared Reagan's desire to eliminate nuclear weapons. And the, the interesting thing was neither leader could accomplish his goals alone. They needed each other. They needed to cooperate. You know, psychologists refer to this as superordinate goals and superordinate goals kind of force people to to cooperate with one another. So we had two leaders, two administrations that really had to cooperate in order to reach their independent goals, which was to reduce and ideally eliminate nuclear weapons. And, and Reagan was a leader in the true sense of the term. He envisioned this world beyond the Cold War. He encountered a lot of resistance from his own advisors, from his allies, from fellow Republicans, fellow conservatives, but he held his ground. And and Gorbachev also faced resistance from conservatives within the Soviet military primarily, but each leader had to overcome internal resistance to their views. um, And also each leader had to put their differences aside in order to pursue this more peaceful World, Um, Reagan always remained an anti communist, but he didn't rise above that. And he reached out to his adversary in order to pursue his vision of this more peaceful world beyond the arms race. And you know, before I began researching this book, I really didn't appreciate just how much resistance Reagan encountered from his own advisors and from allies and from fellow conservatives regarding his views about nuclear weapons, about SDI and um, abolishing nuclear weapons. All the experts thought Reagan was wrong, but he he stood his ground. And the other one final thing, the other thing that Reagan, that triumphalists don't give Reagan credit for is his commitment to diplomacy. Reagan met with Gorbachev five times in three years, which is way more than any of his predecessors. Reagan was committed to disarmament. He was committed to diplomacy. He was committed to dialogue. And all of this gets swept under the rug with the triumphalist uh, narrative.
0: So, and I, you've alluded to this, but what are some of the dangers of triumphalism? Do you see dangers from that today, specifically?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Believing that the Cold War ended because the United States threatened its adversary until the adversary succumbed is dangerous because the takeaway is that current leaders should also threaten our adversaries. The takeaway is that conflicts are resolved when adversaries are threatened into submission. That's the exact opposite of what happened. And in fact, Reagan's early threats brought us to the brink of war. Reagan embraced diplomacy. He embraced disarmament, even with adversaries. That's his legacy.
0: Excellent. Um, before I let you go, I would, I just always like to ask this question. What are you thinking of working on next or what are you working on next?
1: Well, I, you know, I have said to people, if I ever say I'm going to write another book about the Cold War, please slap me. (laughs) Um, But I've said that before. So, you know, I just find Reagan intriguing, and I find the ending of the Cold War just this fascinating case study. So I'm not ruling out coming back to it at some point in the future. Right now, I'm kind of um, moving on to other topics. I'm uh, interested in actually innovation in society and how these two Uh, Interact. So I'm starting to teach some courses on the intersection between innovation and society. And I'm um, beginning to think about some research uh, projects in that area.
0: Fascinating. I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Oh, it it was a great opportunity. I appreciate it.